I've had the opportunity, honor, to live in Peru now for 37 years. Love Peru, love the Latin culture. Uh, I love what God has given us in, in our family. My kids have grown up in Peru. I've, uh, they've married Peruvians. I have seven Peruvian grandbabies, so we are not leaving. We're going to stay there. Uh, love what God has done. Um, uh, any Peruvians here? Hay uno. Hay un peruano aquí nomás. ¿De dónde? Your mom. Mira Flores. I bet your mom cooks good, right? Peruvian moms cook. How many, how many from Mexico or somewhere in the past in Mexico? I love to say this. On the eighth day, God created Mexico. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with tacos. All right? Come on. It's God's gift to the world is Mexico and tacos. So um, love, love Mexico. We're, we're in Mexico. I'll be in Mexico next week. Uh, we're working in about eight cities in Mexico right now, helping churches throughout Mexico and uh, love what God is doing all over the world. Um, your pastor has asked, and we've known each other a little bit through coffee because that drew us together at CMN at the Christian Men's Network. Um, but uh, he asked me to share just a little bit about what we do, and it's too hard to explain it. Uh, I really, it's, it's one of those things that's so hard to explain, I just don't. Uh, we don't talk about all we do. There's, uh, we just do it. We do a lot. But one of the things we do, and this just gives a feeling more for the heart of our church and our ministry, is we do something we call the wheelchair ministry. Now, it's a funny thing, because you've probably never heard of a wheelchair ministry, but it's, it's not something I went to Bible school and studied wheelchair ministry. It was just an itch that needed to be scratched. It was a need that we found when we, uh, and it just kind of was presented to us in an unusual way. And I'll explain it. Um, you see, the poorest of the poor in a third world nation are handicapped. They could never dream of owning a wheelchair, many of these families, because a wheelchair can cost $500, and, and they might earn $10 a week, so there's, they, could, they never dream. The, the government doesn't have the funds to get chairs to them. So these handicapped people live at the mercy of a family member or a neighbor or somebody that actually has to pick them up, bathe them, feed them. Uh, and because of that, they generally live hidden in back rooms of houses, uh, because it's a little embarrassing to crawl down the street. So um, when the way we got into this ministry is there's a quadriplegic lady, a phenomenal world minister. You've probably heard of her, Johnny Erickson Tata. And Johnny Erickson Tata was going through South America. She came to Peru, and somebody mentioned to us um, that she had the Sunday for free. Could we have her speak in our church? And I said, absolutely. I've seen the movie about her life. There's a, a great movie about uh, this woman. She's quadriplegic. And uh, when she came that Sunday morning, we had to do things that you always have to do for uh, handicapped people, like build a ramp up to the platform. And she gave one of the most powerful messages that morning. One of the things she said was this, as she was rolled, rolling around our platform in her wheelchair, she said, you look at this wheelchair as a limitation, but to me, it's freedom. And she went on to say, many look at the cross as a limitation, but to those who know the cross, it's freedom. 
And at the end of the meeting, she, in the back room, began to talk to us, and she said she had a container of wheelchairs in customs. They were stuck in customs, and she asked if we could help her get them out of customs. And I said, actually, we can. We'll get them out of customs for you. And then she asked me a favor. She said, well, I'm leaving. I won't be here when they get out. Can you give them away for me? And I started thinking, well, how many are in that container? And she said, there's 400 chairs. And I could just think, where am I going to give away 400 chairs? So first thing my mind went to was to hospitals. And she said, no, don't give them to hospitals. Give them to people. Oh, okay. Um, and I said, where am I going to find 400 people? And I remember her answer when she looked at me and she said, oh, you'll find them. That was just what she said. You'll find them. So I thought, okay. Well, we got the chairs out. She was gone. And I, I just figured somebody in our church came to me, and I'm thinking, where am I going to give 400 wheelchairs away? And somebody in our church said, well, there's a shanty town just south of Lima, poor area, and there's some disabled, quite a few disabled people there. Maybe we can give the chairs away there. So I said, great. We did what missionaries do. We put a little speaker on top of the car, drove around the neighborhood a couple days saying, if you need a free wheelchair, go to this park Saturday morning. And in this park, we will give you a wheelchair uh, if you need a wheelchair. And just to back it up, I put a few flyers up around saying, if you need a free wheelchair, please be in the park Saturday morning. We will be there to give you a wheelchair. I had my faith up and I put 100 wheelchairs in a truck thinking we might give away, you know, part of the wheelchairs. But just in case we put 100 in the truck saying, you know, hopefully we can give some of these chairs away in this park. I was not ready for the sight we saw when 7,000 people literally in wheelbarrows on backs and skateboards with their knuckles in the dirt or crawling came to us looking for a wheelchair. You can cause a riot if you make a promise to give somebody something and don't. And all I could do is stand up there and I said, I am so sorry. I had no idea. Somehow, some way, we're going to find a way to help you. So we started this wheelchair ministry. So to date, we have given away over 70,000 thousand free wheelchairs and you can say the chair looks kind of funny actually we're now in what we call gin two. it's a little bit different chair but that first chair was actually very practical because it's a mountain bike tire uh, because roads are uneven in third world countries and you don't need a medical engineer to fix it you can take it to any bike mechanic on the corner and the plastic chair was practical because they could take a bath in it uh, the next chair is a little bit better because now we can size it better to the person and their need. But uh, if you, you know, we, there's a statement that we have, and it's this. If you take care of the people nobody wants, God will give you the people everybody wants. Amen. And that's just the way we define what we do. Uh, and we get to get the gospel out by giving wheelchairs away. When you give a chair away, you don't just help the person in the chair. It's the whole family that no longer has to carry them. And they can. it's a joy as I travel all throughout Peru. And we now see people in the street working with the chairs that we've given them. So anyway, that's just a little bit of our ministry. Amen. Uh, in the book of Judges, chapter 20. The book of Judges, chapter 20. I'll give a 
short little teaching. Uh, before I read the verses I'm going to read in just a minute, let me give some background of what I'm going to be reading. Some background of this is it's actually a very sad time in Israel's history. This is a time when there was 12 tribes, but two tribes had separated from the 10 tribes, and Israel was in a civil war. Uh, and it's kind of a sad time. I don't want to get deeper into that time. There's just one little part of this that I want to pull out. But without going into the civil war Israel was in, I want to read this because we can learn something from the tribe of Benjamin. It says in verse 14, Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gebeah to go out to get battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew a sword. Besides the inhabitants of Gebeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Verse 17 says, and the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. Interesting little verse here. It talks about when Benjamin called to muster their men to battle. It talks about Benjamin gathering 26,000 men. And it uses the phrase, who drew a sword. That's a key phrase a little bit later on, okay? Seven uh, out of these 26,000 men who drew a sword. But then it goes on to say there were another group of guys, 700 chosen men. These 700 chosen men would be like the special ops, special forces. 700 chosen men, and it gives certain qualities of these men. One of the things about these 700 chosen men was this fact that they could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. They could sling a stone at a hair and never miss. You, I used to wonder, how can you know if you hit a hair? And the way you knew you hit a hair, you understand a little bit about David and Goliath, how David practiced with his sling, is what they would do in Israel in, in these old times is they would take a woman's long hair they would tie a rock on the bottom and they would take the other end and they would tie it to a tree. Then they would take about 35 paces backwards, roughly 35 yards, and they would practice slinging the stone. And when the hair, when they split the hair, the rock would drop and they knew when the rock dropped, they split that hair. So that, that gives a little idea. And the Bible says these 700 men could sling a stone and not miss and not miss. Special ops, special forces. But it's interesting because it gives another quality of these 700 men. And the other quality of the 700 men was this. They were all left-handed. And for a while, that kind of just threw me. Like, why the Bible, there's no accidents when it writes something. And it says, you know, there were 700 left-handed men who could sling a stone and not miss air. Why did the Bible specifically mention left-handed? What you do, what you do when you're studying the Bible, I would 
go to all the commentaries and I couldn't find an answer. And then I'd, I started looking, you know, in the original Hebrew and all the different languages. And finally, if, one day I found out what the answer was. 700 left-handed men. What, what does left-handed mean? How many want to know what left-handed means in the Bible? Ready? It's really deep. Are you ready? It means not right-handed. Isn't that good? Now, come on. It, what it really means was this. When it says 700 left-handed, it means they were right-handed, but they're no longer right-handed. Now they are left-handed. Let me explain what that means when you, because these were the special ops, special force guys. These are 700 men. What it means was this. If you go into Bible customs or beyond Bible, just military formations in times past, the military formation, they didn't have right-handed weapons and left-handed weapons. If you drew a sword, the sword was always in your right hand. Didn't matter if you were born left-handed or right-handed. You always carried the sword in your right hand, and you always carried the shield in your left. And the reason for that, part of it was the one-to-one the -one combat, the, the advantage that would be gained with each other. But the other one was what they called the shield wall. It's a military formation that goes back through many of the ancient armies. A shield wall is when you would lock shields with the guy next to you. And in that locking shields, in the, in the locking, if the shield was all in the left hand, means you were locking shield with the guys next to you, and the guy next to you was locking shield with your shield, you would then march forward in the shield wall toward the enemy. The shields were in the left hand, and with the right hand, you were poking at the enemy. The shield wall was perfected in some armies to such an art, like the Roman army, that if the Romans put the shields on their head, which was a formation when they're being shot at with arrows, if they put the shields on their head, they could actually drive a horse and a chariot on top of the shields. That's the strength a shield wall would have. The Spartan army had the shield wall so perfected that when they would go into a forest, they would practice with the shield wall knocking trees over as they were marching through a forest. It was just the way they would strengthen the men. Now, you see, the shield is this. Your shield was always in your left hand. And it's interesting to notice because you see, your shield was never in a shield wall to protect you. Your shield protected the guy next to you. And the guy on this side, his shield protected you. The Romans had the, the formation so tight that if the guy in front on the shield wall and the men were marching behind the wall, if the guy in front dropped his shield, that became a weak link in the shield. The guy behind him was ordered to kill him take him out of the wall so he can get back in there, and there was no weak link in the shield wall. You see, the shield of faith that Christ has given us isn't always just to protect you. Sometimes the shield of faith is to protect the guy next to us. Sometimes we need somebody on our side because our faith may be a little bit wavering, but their shield now protects us, and that's why we come together as the body of Christ. We, we need a shield wall. 
We need the faith. My faith can help you, but sometimes your faith can help me. And, and together we march together toward our enemy. Now, the interesting thing is when the Bible says these men were left-handed, what it really means was this. They could no longer draw a sword. What happened? Technically, these were handicapped men. They were wounded in battle. Maybe they were fighting an enemy at one time and the enemy's sword slid down their sword and it chopped off a finger and they could no longer hold the sword. Maybe they lost a couple of fingers or part of their hand or their arm was wounded for whatever reason. They could no longer hold a sword. Now, now that they have been wounded, what are they going to do? And they have a choice. You can say, I've been wounded, I've been hurt, I can't hold a sword, I can't get in the shield wall anymore, I can't fight like everybody else can fight, and because I'm wounded, I'm handicapped, I'm just going to go home, I'm wounded, or I can stay. But if you stay, you have to learn to fight a brand new way. If you stay, you're going to have to learn a new weapon. You're going to have to learn how to fight different. And there's something about it. You see, if ever you've been in a battle and you've been wounded, there's a military term today. Actually, I wrote a book a while back called Honor Found, and I, I didn't add this into the book. I just studied this later, but I, I love studying military history. And, and the history is this. There's, a, there's something in the military. It's called the eye of the tiger. The eye of the tiger is this. They say when a man has been wounded in battle, it's hard that he'll ever be wounded again. They develop what's called the sixth sense. They're, they're extremely battle. If there's a, a patrol going out, a platoon going out, they need somebody in that group, somebody that has the eye of the tiger. Because as they're going out, all the guys, especially the newbies, the guys that are out there, they, they see nothing, they sense nothing. But the guy with the eye of the tiger slows them down and says, wait a minute, something's going on here. And they say, I don't see anything, I don't feel anything. No, I know, I know something is going on. The enemy's around me. Just hold on because they sense something. They sense it. It's called the eye of the tiger. The literal translation for eye of the tiger is this. The literal translation, it's in the fog of battle and the confusion of battle. Things slow down to slow motion. And when things in the fog and the confusion of battle slow down to slow motion, you begin to see clearly how to get out of that battle and what to do. You've sometimes seen that depicted in, in movies where in the middle of a, a moment you see somebody, all of a sudden the battle slows down and he begins to see and know how to move out. That is called the eye of the tiger. Sometimes it's good to have people around you that have been in a battle and came back. Sometimes it's good to have people around you that have, maybe they've been wounded. Maybe somehow along the line, they've, they've got a wound on them. You know, some people, if they've been wounded, and believe me, if you're in church long enough, you'll be wounded. If you're married, you'll be wounded. All right? Hang around Christians, you'll be wounded. Just be, do life. Sooner or later, you're going to lose a finger. And when you're wounded, you have an option. You have a choice. What are you going to do now? You can call 1-800-CRY-BABY and go home. Or you can say, wait a minute. I just saw how the enemy attacked me. I'm going back into battle. Yeah. 
I'm going back in. Let me explain it another way. A number of years ago, um, I was invited to the ex-Soviet Union. I was invited to go to a pastor's conference and I really, I feel like my area is South America. I love South America. I love the work God has given us in South America. I didn't really feel like going to the Soviet Union, but I went. And I, it was a great time. I loved seeing the brothers and what God was doing in the church there. And I was thankful that God had let me see that and talk to the pastors and, and the churches that were there. But the flight home from the Soviet Union to South America is long on a 17-inch seat. And I remember sitting with my wife who was with me on that flight back home. And as we're flying back home, she casually mentioned to me, you know, just said, I, I've got to go to the doctor when I get back and do a checkup. And I said, great, okay, go, typical guy. Just, yeah, have fun. So we got home on a Thursday, and Friday, my wife goes in with my daughter, because I had some work in the office. I went to the office and doing my stuff in the office, and I hadn't seen my wife for a while. I didn't think much of it. She was getting a checkup at the doctor's, but in the early afternoon, I get a call from my daughter, who's still with my wife in the hospital, and, and that call, you could tell by my daughter's voice, that little nervous voice, Dad? Yeah? you need to come down here now. I said, why? Just come now to the hospital. And that day, we went over to the hospital, and I found where they had my wife going through her checkups. And that day, we got the news that my wife had late-stage cancer running through her body. To me, it was like a train wreck. To me, this was it, was, it was unexpected. I didn't expect that. It was, she had breast cancer. It was beyond stage three. Stage four is death. It was already in her cervix, in her lipnoids, and in other parts of her body. And the doctor's prognostic wasn't very much. But, and I still remember when I got that report, I'm just kind of shaking. Oh, my God, this girl has been by my side my whole life. We went to Bible school together. We went to the ministry. God, we're your servants. Why us? Every, all the things that were going through my mind, I was just like, oh, now what? Now what? We had made the decision, because we had services on Saturday and Sunday, that that Saturday night we needed the church to pray with us. So we got up there, and I remember walking in just a little bit late to the service, and my wife was leading worship, and those days she did a lot of the singing, and I was watching on the screens the beautiful angelic voice of my wife, and, and I just sat back there and wept, saying, God, is this the last time? I get to see her like this. There was nothing to do. I just broke again. And then I got up and I said, church, we need to pray. And we told the news. Now, you got to imagine my, my, the way I am. You know, I'm a wreck. And I'm trying to stumble through. We got a prayer request. My wife, they got this news. She's got cancer and all this stuff is going on. And we just need your help in prayer. And and my wife recognized that I was a wreck, so she just said, grabs the mic, and she said this. She said, God didn't send this. I have an enemy. That was such a revelation. 
God didn't send this. You see, there are so many people that figure if, if, if you get something bad that happens to you, it must be God's punishment. No, God is good. God doesn't send this. We have an enemy. God didn't send this. And she grabbed the mic and said, I have an enemy. And then for the next number of years, I watched my wife fight like a girl. I mean, girls can fight. She fought like a girl. She went through the chemo. She went through the radiation. She went through many surgeries. And after all the surgeries and all the chemo and the radiation, I can say today my wife is cancer free. In fact, one of the doctors back in those early days that I had to talk to was Keith Rose, who's sitting back here. And he remembers those early days when we were going through the battle. Now, the, something interesting happened because when you go through all the radiation and the chemo and the operations that she had to go through, the mastectomies and all the other stuff they had to take out of her body, she's healed but she lost a finger. You know what I mean? There's some scars in her body. There's some changes that happened to her. And not all the changes are bad because something happened. You see, what happened today is this. My wife can be in a room of a thousand people, thousand women in the room, and, and all of a sudden she disappears. And I'm going, where is she? Where is she? She's gone. She's somewhere in the crowd. Because in that room, she saw that one lady that nobody else saw with a little do wrap on her head, the scarf wrapped around her head from the chemo, with the sun and all the, the telltale signs of what she's going through. And my wife saw him. Nobody else noticed it. But you see, my wife today has the eye of the tiger. So she'll be back there sitting with that lady. And pretty soon they're, they're praying together. And then they're crying together because my wife can look at her and say, Girl, you can fight this. You've got this. I know what you're going through. The same battle that you have, I went through. I got the victory over it. And God can give you the victories. My wife has the eye of the tiger. Have you ever been wounded? I'll give you another story. Not easy to tell some of these stories, especially this one. Because when my little girl, Jenna, was 13, 14, she began to develop this eating disorder. I couldn't figure out what was going on. She just kept getting skinnier and skinnier. And, and I was doing the dad thing. You know what dads do? Eat. I didn't realize if you tell a girl with an eating disorder to eat, you tie her stomach in knots, and she can't. And I was watching my daughter just get thinner and thinner, and I didn't know what to do. Really didn't know, how, how do I get her out of this funk? And then it got worse because she started cutting herself and getting into self-mutilation. The thing is, my girl, my daughter loved God. She just hated herself. She didn't like herself. And I really couldn't figure out why. By the time she was 16, 17, I was starting to look, God, I need help. I can't handle this. I need help. And I started looking around. I found some ranch in Arizona and that said they can work with girls with eating disorders, but it was $2,000 a day. I'm a missionary. I couldn't afford that. 
Dads would sell their homes. I didn't have a home to sell. But I would have. It was my God. It was my little girl. And finally, I was in a conference over at Saddleback. And while I was at the conference, just grabbed the church bulletin. And I noticed in this church bulletin that they had a small group with girls with eating disorders. And I thought, maybe there's hope here. And then I got the phone call that no dad wants to get. Your little girl is sick. She's really bad. And I said, do whatever it takes. Get her on the next flight. Get her over here to maybe I can find some of these girls that can help us. And we, we, I bought a ticket that night back to Los Angeles where I was. And, and when we got the ticket, my daughter got to the airport that night. And the airlines looked at my daughter, looked at the ticket and said, we're not letting you on the plane unless you have a doctor's certificate. You're not well. So I called a doctor in my church the next day and I said, write a certificate. He did. They let my daughter on the plane the next night, but she was so sick, they almost landed the plane in Panama because they didn't think she would make it to L.A. That's how sick she was. She got to L.A., and my wife lived in L.A. with my daughter for a year, and it was hell on earth. We had a psychologist in the church, but she couldn't penetrate into my daughter, and it was just... It was just hell. It was one of the worst times. I'm flying back and forth between L.A. and our church in Peru, thinking I've got to give this church over to somebody because this is my girl. This is my daughter. What am I going to do? And after a year, in a moment of desperation, somebody said, in Hillsong Church in Australia, there's a girl named Darlene Check, the singer. She has a ministry to girls. Maybe she can help your daughter. So we called Darlene, got her on the phone, and told her what we're going through. And she said, bring her to me. My, girl, my little girl, daughter, she didn't want to go. She did not want to go until I told her, maybe you'll learn how to talk Australian and have an accent like them. She goes, okay, I'll go. <laughs> I'll go. So we took her to Australia. My daughter spent a year in Australia. And at the end of the year, God gave us our daughter back. Totally healed. Totally healed. But things happen because that was a year in California and another year in Australia. And you know, sometimes Christians are mean, not in Rock City. I'm talking about other churches. Sometimes Christians can be a little mean because, you know, this thing started going through the church. Oh, the pastor's daughter must be pregnant. That's why he's hiding her. It's been now two years. She's been gone. Something's wrong. And I'd say, no, no, no. But I'm trying to protect my daughter's privacy. So I'm not telling them what's going on. I'm just saying, hey, she's got an issue. Just pray for us. We're just having a family thing and just pray for us. And, and finally, my daughter comes back healed. My little girl is restored. My little girl is restored. And it was the most amazing thing because when she came back, we were going into a pastor's conference and she looked at me as we're going into the conference, thousands of pastors that were coming from all over South America. And she said, Dad, I'm ready to tell my story. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, I want to tell my story. I go, really? She goes, yeah. I said, okay. I let her up on the platform. Go tell your story. I forgot we were live on the radio. And the next day, we started getting the phone calls. Mom's calling us. My daughter, 
my girl, help us. She's going through this. Girls that were calling us, hey, I've got the same thing. I need help. Can you help us? I need help. Can you help us? And, and all of a sudden, I'm looking around. I'm saying, my God, this is an issue. We were getting hundreds of calls. This is a, a theme. Why is this such an issue in a third world country? Why is this such a problem? And the answer was too hard to find. You know why it's an issue in third world countries? Sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is rampant in Latin America. And if a girl cannot control her own body, she'll control one thing she can, and she quits eating. And that's when I found out my daughter was sexually abused by a neighbor. No dad wants to hear that. But my daughter got healed. She lost a finger, but she's healed. Now she has the eye of the tiger. Now there can be thousands of youth in our church. And in these thousands of youth, all of a sudden my daughter will disappear. It's weird. My wife's gone. Now my daughter's gone. And my daughter's gone. And she, because why? She saw that one girl that nobody else saw, that little gothic looking girl with the hoodie on and sleeves on a hot day up to here. And she sees that girl. And pretty soon my daughter's sitting, listening, looking at her. And the girl's going, what do you want? And she, my daughter just says, hey, I recognize what you're going through. That was me. Look at, look at the scars. Look at my arms, too. Look at what God has done. And pretty soon they're talking. And pretty soon they're crying. Because, you see, my daughter knows how the enemy fights. And she didn't quit. She went back to battle. Every now and then, we need some people around us that have been through a battle. Maybe they've been hurt. Maybe they lost a finger. Today, we have a house in Peru, the only one of its kind in all of South America. It's called the Grace House. It's the only one of its kind. And because the other houses charge $2,000 a day, we don't charge anything because the girls that go in there need to know they're there, because, not because mom and dad have money. They're there because Jesus loves them. And they come into the house. We have had over 90 graduates, girls that have graduated that house. And we've seen God do miracles. Why? Because my daughter has the eye of the tiger. See, I need people around me that aren't perfect. I need people around me that have been through a battle. I need people around me that the enemy attacked their marriage, but they got better. And then they can look at other families in the church and say, hey, I've seen how the enemy's attacked our lives and I see it on you. Let me tell you how to get through this. I need some people that have been through some addictions, some habits that are hard to get away from. I need some people that understand because when they see somebody else that's gone through that habit and they, they, they think there's no way out, they can say, no, look at my finger. I'm missing a finger. I'm missing a hand, but I learned to fight another way. The Bible says, having done all to stand, stand ye therefore putting on the whole armor of God. So if you've ever been wounded, there's a way. If you're wounded now, it's not the end. If you've lost a finger, like I said, if, if you have never been wounded, I've got news for you. Your time is coming. If you hang around church long enough, you'll get wounded. 
If you're married, you'll get wounded. If you've got kids, you'll get wounded. But once you learn to fight again, you know how the enemy fights. And what the enemy thought would take you out has now just made you better. Amen. Has now just made you stronger in Jesus' name. Father, we call on you in Jesus' name. And I ask Holy Spirit to heal some hearts. Holy Spirit, begin to work in those deep places in our hearts. The hurt places. The places that are a little bit bleeding. The places that are, there's a wound, there's a scar. And help us learn to fight again. It's not easy if you're right-handed to learn to use your left hand. But God, we're going to take the time to learn because people need us. In Jesus' name. Let me just do one more prayer. Are there some people here right now? And you understand what I'm talking about? You're wounded now. And you don't see your way past it. If you're one of these people, you just, God, I don't know if I can see my way out of this. I don't know if I can. This is just, it's, it hurts. Let me tell you, the eye of the tiger is your future. All right. Let's just do this. Everybody just give a moment of just time, time out to God, pray. And if that is you, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask what it is, but I will ask you to stand because I want to pray for you. Amen. If you are here and you are going through an issue and you're just asking God to help you through this and you don't see the way out right now, you're asking God to bring healing. In Jesus' name. What the enemy thought could take you out just made you better. We don't see it now. We don't feel it now. But in the name of Jesus, Father, we raise our voices together and we stand together. Once again, our shields will lock. And when we feel weak, okay, I need the shields from the guys around me. But in the name of Jesus, I pray for strength. And I pray for healing. God, the scars will always be seen. But it's a scar of victory and testimony. It's not a scar that took us out. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, bring strength. And give us the eye of the tiger. In Jesus' name. Let me do one more prayer. Go ahead and be seated. I don't, this is what I do in our church every Sunday. You know, God loves you. God loves you more than you can imagine. Some people say, if God loves me, why do I have this big mess going on in my life? God is not the problem. He's the answer. Okay, so sometimes the world gets messy. Life gets messy. But God loves you. The very phrase, God is love. Just that phrase, God is love. Do you know what that means? It proves the existence of the Holy Trinity. Because love can never exist by itself. 
Love can never exist if it's just one person. The expression of love is always giving. Love gives. Lust takes at the expense of others for the benefit of one. Love gives at the cost of one for the benefit of another. And God is love. God loves you so much. So much. But, and this is for somebody that might be here. God loves you. He's not against you. God loves you. Some people say, well, if God loves me, why is my life a mess? Like I said, he's not the problem. He's the answer. Don't run from him. Run to him. The Bible says it's not good for man to be alone or woman because that's what the enemy wants to do. You know what the devil's prayer is? The devil's prayer is leave me alone because the devil knows it's not good for you to be alone. Sometimes we need the brothers around us and the sisters. God loves you so much. But that love says this, God's never going to invade your life against your will. Love is only real when it's voluntary. You cannot force anybody to love you. You cannot obligate anybody to love you. Love can only be given. God loves you, but he doesn't invade your life against your will. He waits for you to give him access. And I want to ask you, are you here and you've closed off to God, but you want to give him access? Can I pray with you? If you just want to do that, if you've never prayed this prayer or just have closed off and say, I don't want to close. I want God to have access to my life. I want to pray with you. Just not, nobody looking around this time. Let's just be private. And if that's you that I'm praying for, just raise your hand. If you say, I need this in my life, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. I need this. I have been that one that one. I feel close to God, and I don't want to be close to him. I need him. Several people have raised your hands. It's a simple, simple prayer. You've prayed it before, but pray it now like you mean it. And everybody gathered together with them that are going to pray, pray with us. Say this, dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you've died for me. And you rose again. Forgive me of my sin. I don't want to offend you anymore. Come into my life. I give you full access. Help me to walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless.